3rd of July, soon to be 4th of July. It's all the same, right? Um, Great time to celebrate what we have. Um, Hey, we're going to start. Actually, you know what? First of all, like we started um, on youth group uh, Wednesday nights at 7. We're starting going through a new book called 10 Questions Every Teen uh, Should Ask and Answer About Christian Faith. So if you're interested in that and you know a teen who might be, there's copies right on the second to bottom shelf over there. You can have one. They're free. Give it to a teen. If they want to join us uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going to be going through that. Uh, just like doing a little bit of apologetics with uh, the high school and junior high. I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, take one. Hand it out. Get, in, get into the hands of people, of the people. So, uh, hey, let's pray, and, and we'll get started. Uh, all right, so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you're so good, Lord, and that, that uh, simple statement is uh, something that we can come to you with, Lord, just acknowledging and recognizing. Lord, that's our way of worship, just seeing you for who you are. You're so good. You're so gracious. You're so kind, Lord. At every step of the way, as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, we are seeing you as good, awesome, merciful, kind, gracious, Lord. Lord, we want to see you ever more this morning, Lord. We ask that uh, as you, as we turn to your word, your revelation of yourself, of your character, of how you are in the world, Lord, that we would just get a glimpse of, of you, of you, uh, Lord, because we don't want to just fill our, uh, ourselves with ideas that, that we've devised, Lord, but with ideas of who you are. We want to know how you actually are, Lord, and what are the true promises that we can stand on and build our lives upon, Lord. So, so we come in that spirit, Lord, just, just humbly asking you, speak to us, Lord. Lord, have your way in this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone, I don't know if this was reported in the news, but there was a Gospel Coalition piece, um, a Gospel Coalition is a website, they sometimes have news and stuff, I think I've got a, a, little, a little picture of it, um, um, about, about something that happened in Portland, Portland, Oregon, you know, not just down the road, um, it's called When the Mob Shows Up on Monday After Row. Um, and basically, the author, Michael Lawrence, who's a pastor uh, at Hinson Baptist Church uh, in Portland, which is on the east side of Portland, uh, he, wrote, he wrote, wrote this. I'm just going to summarize, read a little bit of what, what he said. He said, about 7 p.m. on Monday, three days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, between 75 and 100 people assembled at a park near the church I pastor in Portland, Oregon. In broad daylight, they marched to our uh, office building, which hosts the administrative office of several nonprofits, including a pregnancy resource center. And after circling the block, a group of well-prepared and fully masked individuals broke off, using umbrellas and masks to shield their identities from security cameras. They smashed almost every ground floor window on the side of the building that hadn't been boarded up and covered the building with vile graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. Well, we're from Seattle, so we know about this stuff. That's sort of a joke. <laughs> I don't know, I was attempted a joke. Um, when I read this piece earlier today, I, I immediately just saw the connections between what we're going to be reading about today in Acts 14 um, and just our everyday lives. Uh, because like we're going to see in Acts 14 um, is, the, is, that, is that Paul and Barnabas and, and their companions are traveling around uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. And I've got a little map of the places where they hit up throughout this chapter. Um, they're traveling around uh, Turkey. They're going from, from town to town. Um, and they have, in each place they go, uh, initial success, initial ministry success. A lot of people are interested. A lot of people are responding to what they're saying. And yet, uh, twice, not just once, but twice, their success turns into mob violence, <laughs> right? So a pretty uh, hard left turn in terms of, of, of the response to the gospel that, they, that they're experiencing. Um, and so in a lot of ways, like the kind of violence that, that this church endured, not, not too far from us, um, it's not really surprising. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Even though we might be a little bit unnerved. Like, I mean, I, I was born in Portland and uh, spent some time growing up there. So you, you think of it like, I mean, I lived in Lake Oswego, you know, which is like a suburb of Portland. It's like a very idyllic, quiet little place. And then you think, oh, okay, all right. Well, it's, Portland's changed a little bit over the years, I guess. Um, but you know what? As we read Scripture, there's definitely precedent for God's people being, being attacked, for, for there being um, a, a violent reaction against Christians, against Christians in particular. I'm going to have some of this, if you don't mind. Ah, that's probably not good to drink a fizzy drink, but whatever. 
you might have to suffer the consequences. There's precedent for things like this. Um, but, you know, I think part of, part of my job as somebody who's like trying to, trying to draw these connections and help us to apply the Bible to, to our own lives is, well, to help us all make, make sense of these things, to, to make sense of our lives now and see the connections between uh, what, what God was doing then in Scripture and what he's doing now and continues to do in our own lives. So, so how do we make sense of things like this? How do we make sense when there's this kind of violence directed at Christians? It's not a simple question, right? I mean, if we could get into, we could really wade into the complexity of of this particular issue and the issues surrounding this particular attack. Um, And as I was thinking about how I I could go about talking about these, I thought of several ways that I could approach it, okay, right? So here's a couple ways that I'm not going to approach it, but I could, right? Just, Just to illustrate how complex the issue is. I could talk about the historic Christian commitment to life, right? Beginning in the Roman Empire where, where babies were left out to, to die, just, just called ex- being exposed to the elements. If they weren't uh, claimed by their father, they would just be left out to die. And, and what Christians did all throughout the first uh, through 300 years of their life when this was a normal cultural practice is that they would adopt these children and they would, they would care about them. They would, they would protect them. Uh, there's historically been in the Christian church a commitment to watch out for the most needy and, and, and the, the most vulnerable of people. I could talk about that, um, and I could talk about how, you know, that commitment um, is going to be attacked because it's going to be viewed as judgmental and as um, bigoted by, by, by some people who would prefer to, to live a certain way. Like, I could, I could make that argument, right? Right? I could. Again, I'm not, not going to spend that much time doing it because I think, for the most part, I think a lot of us probably think that there's something to that, and we can have that discussion if you want. I could also talk about how um, it's actually important not only to be committed to protecting life, but also to supporting people who have, have very real needs. You know, we could talk about the, the, the thing that if we're, if we're going to be committed to life, we're going to be committed to protecting life as Christians, people who are, um, have a certain view of what, what morality is, and, and we, we consider ab- abortion in this instance, right, to be uh, problematic morally, then we should also be providing direct care for women and children. Adoption, stepping into the foster system, stepping in to actually fill the breach and and deal with the real messy ethical problems that our positions end up creating, right? Because God has called us to be the sorts of people who care enough to make ourselves uncomfortable and who care enough about what's right and what's good to be the kinds of people who live our lives um, in in such a way where we we just put down our preferences and we, we serve other people just like Jesus taught us to. I could definitely talk about that as well. And we have to put our money where our mouth is, our time and our commitment to where our mouth is. Or I could say, I could just minimize it, right? I could say, well, I mean, if we think this is persecution, just, just go to China, just go to North Korea, just go to Iran, like those places. They're having some real persecution issues. And, and I really, I mean, I believe that. I believe all these things. These are all things that are be, being true. I mean, how can we compare a few smashed windows to being thrown in prison, killed, executed? It's hard to compare. I could say all these things, right? I could talk about what persecution is and how these, really these people aren't really even mad at these particular Christians. They're just, they're just being made symbols, symbols that an ideological perspective is, is persecuting because they're just like thinking that they're opposed to them when really there's not really a lot of opposition. I could talk about all these things. I could try to dismiss what's going on. Um, and I think all that would be true. But when Paul and Barnabas, right? Paul and Barnabas who are living out persecution. They're being attacked by, by mobs. Um, they're doing the same thing that I'm called to do, like they're being pastoral among the people, the believers that they're, that they're ministering to. And they, um, in light of all the violence and attacks that they suffer and all the persecution that they're going through, they actually have a, just a very simple message. And we read about it at the end of Acts chapter 14. So we're going to actually jump to the end. We're going to get through the rest of it. But this is what, what happens, okay? So they've, they've gone around, they've been persecuted, attacked twice by, by a mob, stoned once. And then he says this. After they had preached the gospel in that town, the town that they were in, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So Paul and Barnabas' take on the mob violence that they suffered um, was pretty simple. 
They go back to the very places, the very towns, right, where they had just not long ago been driven out of, stoned in one case. A mob drove them out in the other case. In the other case, there was a, there was a plot against them to kill them, and they, they found out about it earlier, and so they left early. It goes back to those exact same places where they were driven out of. And they have a simple message to the Christians who were there. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Notice Paul doesn't explain how to get out of those hardships. He doesn't even seem to acknowledge that they're a problem. In fact, he says it's necessary that these sorts of hardships, this kind of uh, the, uh, turbulence is going to happen in the course of a Christian life, in the course of, of living after the kingdom of God and worshiping Jesus. He doesn't uh, tell them the three steps they need to take in order to avoid these hardships. He just says it's necessary. And that is a bummer of a sermon. But that's the sermon I have to give. Right? Because it's right there. I can't tell you, oh, yeah, they had some other plan. No, it's just, this, this is it. It's going to be necessary. Paul and Barnabas knew it was true. They experienced it. All right, so let's, let's back it up a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 14. Let's just kind of lead, see what the lead up to this was, okay? So in Iconium, they returned, they, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside where they continued preaching the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas, they go to the city called Iconium. They, they speak the gospel publicly, first in the synagogue and then amongst uh, the, the non-Jewish, uh, non-believing uh, people. And lots of people believed. Jews believed when they went to the synagogue, and Gentiles believed. These people had no context for, for the, the, the messianic promise that they're talking about, this, this Jewish kind of faith that they're talking about. Both groups believe. But immediately, what we see is that a group of unbelieving people, right? So, so, so some people believe, but not everybody. And a group of these unbelieving people begin to stir up the crowds of Gentiles against Paul. And they're distorting his message, saying that he's meaning things and saying things that he's not saying or meaning. And driving the people to come up with this plot. But they stuck it out. They stayed there and they kept teaching for a while. And as they were teaching about this message of grace, God himself is coming alongside, right? Their words, talking about what, he, what God has done by gracing us with Jesus. He's coming alongside them, and they're able to, enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So, so like actions that are miraculous, which are testifying to the truth of what they're saying. They're performing signs and wonders. And I think the connection is worth noting because Paul and Barnabas, like they have this specific message that they're going around preaching. It's not just like a message about God generally, that he exists, right? It's not just, oh, yep, there's a God. <laughs> Who knew, right? It's, it's not just that simple. It's that, that he uh, expects, uh, or it's not even that he like, expects something of the people of Iconium, that they need to do certain things, obey certain laws or rules. That's not it at all. The message that they deliver, it, means, it says simply here, is a message of grace. It's a message of grace. It's, a, it's the message that we've talked about for the last two weeks. We've been really focusing on grace the last two weeks. Um, and if you remember last week, we talked about what grace means. Grace is the Greek word charis, and charis simply means gift. It's a message of the gift, that a gift has been given to people, that people need to understand and, and, and understand that God is doing something in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world. It's his way of demonstrating to all people that he desires to restart something, something that was lost. That's the proclamation of the gospel is first and foremost this before it is anything else. It is that you have been separated from God and God has brought a gift to bring you back into a relationship with him. 
to take away sin and separation and ignorance and darkness and blindness and all the things that get in the way, to take those things out of the way simply by giving you a gift to wake you up to reality. That's just the simple message. It is all God, very little of you, almost none of you. God has done something. He's sent a gift. Jesus Christ is the gift. Uh, you might remember this quote from John Barclay if you were here, like, I don't know, I think it's been like four or five months. Um, John Barclay, he has a, a great book. I think I have it back there. It's called Paul and the Gift. <laughs> um, and he, he says this about gifts, and I think it's really, it's really worth thinking about. He says this, in most cultures and in most times, gifts are a part of a circular exchange, a circular exchange. Think about that. An ongoing cycle where the gift is meant to create or maintain a social relationship. Payment for goods and services is generally, generally the end of a transaction. But a gift is not the end of a relationship, and neither is the return. One gives or gives back, typically at a later time and in some identical form, in order to continue the relationship that is, in principle, open-ended. So you understand what's happening in the proclamation of this message of grace is that Paul is going around all over to these, these Gentiles, non-believing sort of people, and he's just saying, God has given you a gift for the purpose of initiating a continual relationship. Not one that just is like, oh, I, I gave you something, I gave you your grace card, you can punch it, get out of jail free, not going to go to hell, awesome. No, he's saying, I'm inviting you into my very life and presence. I'm inviting you into an, an ongoing sort of relationship, and I'm, and I'm starting that relationship by giving you a gift, the gift which is going to initiate something in you. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent out to proclaim this gift. The gift is Jesus. He's given in order to restart, reconnect you, reconcile you to God is the word that, that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians later. There is forgiveness now because Jesus died on the cross. He died as a gift, as a sacrifice to make you right before the Lord to take away sin. And there's a new way to be a person. It is marked by this cyclical, ongoing relationship, this circular exchange where I just receive from God and then I start to just give him my worship and my praise and my life. And, I'm, and I find that I'm changed as I get caught up more and more in this ongoing process of his grace. There's a new way to be a person because of what Jesus has done. It doesn't just, it's not just punching my card and getting out of jail free. Something very much more than that. And God accompanies this announcement of this heavenly gift along with heavenly power. He's, he's testifying to the truth of it because, honestly, on its face, it is difficult to believe that God who created everything is at all interested in a relationship with me. I would need some convincing. And so Paul goes along with Barnabas and they do some convincing they're empowered to do convincing along with a proclamation of this message. And we see it as they go along in the next town. This sort of pattern continues. It says this, in Lystra, a place where they fled after, an organization, after people had organized opposition to them and planned to stone them, a man was sitting uh, who was without strength in his feet. He had never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. And after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and he began to walk around. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. And the apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this, and they rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are also people just like you, and we are proclaiming to you the good news that you have to turn from these worthless living things to the living God. These worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruit and, and fruitful seasons and filling you with the food of your, uh, and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. 
some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won, the, won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. And the next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they, they have left Iconium. They come to Lystra, this city which evidently uh, has a lot of, of Zeus worship, a lot of worship of the, the going on in the Greek, Greek pantheon. And they just keep doing the same thing that they were doing before in Iconium. They are proclaiming the message of grace. They are demonstrating the kingdom along the way. And as they, they go and they start to, to proclaim this message among a crowd, Paul sees a particular man. He discerns that this man has faith, that he is responding to the message with, with belief, with trust, with, with open arms. And this particular man couldn't walk. So Paul sees that he has faith. He discerns that he has faith. Somehow, he, he just understands it. And then they say to him, get up and walk. He's healed. Again, like, like along with the message come these, these signs and wonders, this, this, this acts of, um, of healing. And it's so consistent with the gift. Because this man didn't do anything. He, he wasn't looking for anything. But suddenly he hears, God is with us. God is among us. God cares about us. He's revealed himself. And then God consistently like, does, does something even greater. He, he says, I'm going to give you an even greater gift. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to make you well. What promises we have in the Lord. Like we, we, have, we have promises from him. God is so gracious, and he's so kind, and he continues to be. He continues to answer prayer. He continues to move and heal. He continues to, to care about people and watch over them, see their needs, and respond to them because he's a God of mercy, and he's a God of grace. He's a God who gives gifts to people. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. That's, that's God's character that we see revealed, displayed. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're just going out, and they're just saying, look it, we know this God. So we're going to act in a way that's consistent with who he is. We're going to act just like he is. He's a God who gifts and cares and he's full of mercy. And so we're going to go out proclaiming his mercy and then acting accordingly, according to his power, according to his enabling and equipping. But other people are watching, right? Other people are watching what's going on. This whole crowd is going on what's going on. And they know this man. They've seen him sitting there for forever. And they see him healed. And then all of a sudden this crowd gathers and, and things get pretty wild, in a, in a very, very strange way, they decide, reasonably, of course, right? Since these men can do just such amazing things, and they've never seen anybody who could do such amazing things before, that they just must be Zeus and Hermes, come down to heaven. Now, now Paul and, and Barnabas are not at all indicating to them that they are Zeus or Hermes, but they just decide this is what's going to happen. Uh, these two most important gods in the Greek pantheon are just here among us. And they start shouting their language. The gods have come down into us in human form. And so they do what they do. They uh, gather uh, Paul and Barnabas and, and um, they try to uh, make sacrifices. Thanks that, that the gods have come down to us in human form. But P Paul and Barnabas have to really work super hard to try to convince these people that, no, this, that's not, you're misunderstanding. You're, you're misinterpreting what's going on here. Like, you think that's what's going on, but that's because, like, you have this worldview, and you have this idea of who the gods are and what they're like, right? And so you see something powerful, and you think, that must be what's going on. You're missing God in the middle of all of this. Like, you think gods have come down in human form, and, and that's actually a really funny pronouncement because, of course, that's part of the message that he's giving is that God has come down. He's taken on flesh. He's dwelt among us. He's coming in mercifully, the, but it's the one true God, the one who has created all things, right? And, and Paul and Barnabas try to explain that, right? They say, we are people just like you. We've proclaimed the good news to you, the good news, this message of grace, that you turn from these worthless things to the living God, not to this pantheon, not to these embodies powers that you just like have ascribed, you know, some value. He said, but, but there's a real God. He made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. He says, in, in past generations, he's helping them have some context for, for what they're doing. He says, in past generations, like he sort of just let everybody go on his own way. He was, he was gracious. He was kind. He, he even provided for them, let the sun come up, brought the harvest, let them have, have rain in their season, right? But now what he's doing is he's gathering people in. He's doing something else, right? He's, he's giving context to this message. 
I like how N.T. Wright explains this, this little passage. He says, one of the things this passage highlights is the almost bottomless pit of potential misunderstandings that await anyone who tries to speak and live out the essentially Jewish message of the gospel, that is, that there's a Savior. With its remarkable news of the one true creator God, there are so many barriers in the way, so much anger against the way the world is, often with people simultaneously blaming God for all the bad and declaring that they don't believe in him. So much distortion of what the message is through bad teaching or bad experience of the church or synagogue. But the point of this whole narrative in its larger framework is precisely to show how the explosive, if deeply confusing, effects of taking the message of Jesus out into the wider world. The journey of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, quoting Acts 1-8, is unstoppable, but uncomfortable. That comes with the territory. And I love it, because, like, they're just yelling and screaming this sermon. I mean, I can't imagine, like, all, like, the, the rage in the crowd, and they're just, like, partying. There's probably music playing, and they're like, no, 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 stop, 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 and tearing their clothes and trying to do things that would symbolize to these people, no, no, bad, not good. We're not happy about this. We're sad. Like, we're, we're upset. Could you just stop and listen for a second, right? But they just have all these misunderstandings. As we go out talking to people about Jesus, the bottomless pit of misunderstandings is awaiting us. And I think we feel the weight of that. You know, like you come in and you start talking about Jesus. This is my favorite conversation, right? You ever had this one? You come in and start talking about Jesus, and then you're immediately talking about politics. How does that happen? I was talking about Jesus, and now we're talking about politics. Oh, welcome to the world, right? You start talking about Jesus. Just like, like, man, this message of grace, he's kind, he's good, and then immediately you're starting talking about people's hurts and hang-ups and all the things that the church has done, and, and frankly, we do kind of have to own that stuff. There's a bottomless pit of misunderstandings, and it gets difficult, and honestly, like, I think it, it gets difficult in our heads sometimes to even want to talk about Jesus because we think, what am I wading into? I don't want to deal with this sometimes. Over the past weeks, uh, we've been going through Acts in this section of Acts, and we've been talking about a model of apologetics. Apologetics is just the, the Christian word for giving a defense of the gospel, giving a defense of the things that we read. And we, we, we've been looking at this model that a guy named Paul Gould has been developing, um, and we've just kind of been talking about different elements of it each week. We've been thinking through this model a little bit, and I'd like to take some time to morning, this morning just to, to get back into it, because I think it's really, it's really relevant here. Like, this is, this is part of how we talk about the gospel, right? And so just to represent some of the ideas, basically, um, Paul Gould is saying that all people have at least three essential longings. Everybody has a longing for truth, everybody has a longing for goodness, and everybody has a longing for beauty. No matter what your cultural background or, or how you, uh, those ideas get mobilized in your head, he's basically saying is that everybody has these essentially in their character. And I think it's certainly true, at the very least, of people in the West who grew up in kind of like a Western mindset like, like we have. So everybody has these things, a longing for truth, a longing for goodness, a longing for beauty, and we, we exercise different capacities within ourselves in order to figure out how to satisfy those longings. So you have a longing for truth, and people use their reason in order to satisfy those longings. Sometimes they use their reason to come to an understanding about how the world actually works, you know, how the world really is, because that's what truth is about. It's about reality. And they use their reason to decide to develop a model for how the world works. Oftentimes, uh, this will be like scientific naturalism. Right? So the things that we can know about the world, the way that we can understand reality and truth is that we practice the scientific method and we think, uh, think about, uh, we use our reason in order to um, test and measure what's true. But of course, that worldview has limits. It really does. <laughs> uh, we can talk about those, those sometimes. Uh, but ultimately, um, if everything is materialistic and the only thing that's real are things that can be measured, then the only things that you're ever going to perceive to be real are things that you can measure and test and achieve through an understanding of the scientific method. And maybe, just maybe, there's 
reason that's more deep than that, all right? Everybody has a longing for goodness. We all have a conscience. We all have a conscience. It's a way that we can satisfy ourselves and think of ourselves as good, just, right, people, right? Everybody's got a conscience. It's something that you have. And, and everybody wants to feel okay about themselves. Everybody wants to feel like they're a good person. And everybody succeeds to a degree in doing that. Now, is everybody according to what standard a good person? Well, I, I don't know, but everybody has a conscience, right? And different consciences point us in different directions. The conscience is an ultimate. It's not ultimately true, right? But it's what we use in order to develop an understanding of what the world is like. And then we all have a longing for beauty. Uh, this is, I, I think, is we've, we've lost a sense of this in Protestant uh, Christianity, because, uh, you know, like the, the, the Reformation, like, which is like big white box pulpit in the middle, nothing else. Get rid of all this art and stuff. Those, that's Catholic, <laughs> right? Uh, we've got some history. We need to get over it, right? Um, but there, there's, there's, there's beauty. Everybody longs for beauty. Everybody longs for a sense that life should be meaningful and beautiful. And we all have our imagination. And we, 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 we try to think of the world in a very beautiful way, okay? And so everybody's got these things, and they're just naturally in the world. And so what we can do as we're going to present the gospel is we can start to lean into these things to reason with people, to help them understand why the gospel makes sense, what the gospel is, why it makes sense, why it actually satisfies their longing for goodness, why it actually, in, in a really remarkable way, can solve the problem of conscience, right? Because, because Jesus will forgive, right? But he doesn't just leave it at that. He then draws you into this relationship where he transforms you and actually makes you into a good person like an objectively good person, right? And we, we sometimes forget about that in theology. We think, oh, I'm forgiven, good, that's enough. But actually what we're doing when we have forgiveness, we're, we're coming into a relationship with God and we're called then to be everyday disciples, people who are living out our lives in the pattern that Jesus taught us. And we are becoming people who love the things that Jesus loved. And Jesus loved forgiveness and mercy and kindness. He was all about serving other people, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, like things that we don't, I think, think about too often and we really should. And if we were to live into those things, actually our lives would be shining with goodness and shining examples of what it looks like to be a good person to the point where people would say, I'm like okay with my conscience over here and I've developed this system of thinking about how good I am, but I see you and I compare it to me and my conscience is starting to get a little uneasy because you're generous when everybody else is selfish and you're kind when everybody else is harsh and you're loving, and when you make mistakes, which of course you do, you actually come back and apologize. How remarkable is that? Nobody does that. And so people start to get this sense, oh, maybe there really is a way to become a good person, a person who knows God and reflects his character. Or we invite people in to think about the more beautiful story, the story that Jesus is unfolding. It's not just a story of, of power dynamics, right? Because what the world says right now, the story that's going on and the story that's happening outside these walls and in Washington and Olympia, right? Olympia. <laughs> that's, you wouldn't know it's the capital except for the giant building. There's nothing else there but Olympia. Um, it's, a, it's a funny, funny town. I, 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 love, I love it when we put capitals and it's like, oh yeah, but it's really Seattle. That's, Seattle's the capital. So there's another thing going on. It's a better story than just a powers in conflict. It's actually God saving the world and entering into it. It's a far more beautiful story. We begin to tell those stories. We begin to talk with people, reason with people. We begin to, to, to present the, the solution that God has for our moral issues and stuff, and we talk to people about Jesus. But inevitably, what we come up against, and I think I've got one more slide here, is that we come up to barriers along the way. We come up to barriers along the way. Because it would be easy for me to think, oh, I just like talk about those three things and I just live that way and then bam, straight to the gospel, people are going to get saved. But what the reality is, is that you can be the most articulate person in the world. Paul was articulate. In fact, they called him Hermes because he's a real good talker just like Hermes, right? But even a Hermes with his with hermeneutical, oh, hermeneutics. <laughs> he's unpacking, explaining, opening up. That probably comes from Hermes. I had no idea. You learn things by talking. Um, even with his great skill, his oratory skill, like he, there's still objections to the gospel, and he's got to overcome them. And I think what's really funny, and actually is a little bit of a comfort to me, is that 
he fails pretty much here, right? He succeeds at getting them not to sacrifice to them. But then immediately, they organize and stone him. I, honestly, like, let's just be honest. Sometimes you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to do all the right things, and they're still going to stone you. <laughs> That's life. They're still going to, it's just like, because there's barriers, there's deeply intense barriers, you know, there's an ideas of, of, of what Christians are, and there's hurt, and there's pain. They say that a person needs to hear the gospel seven times. The average person hears the gospel seven times, logically presented to them until they actually come to understand, at least. So look at, there's a lot of barriers along the way. And we see these barriers like in the way that they act, right? He, he tries to explain to them. He says, you're acting in ignorance. Like, like you're, you're, not, you're not doing what's consistent with, with what God has revealed, what I'm trying to explain to you. Like God, he made all these things. And he, he's able to stop the crowd, but he isn't able to, to get them to believe. He isn't able to get them to understand. The gospel is easy to misunderstand. And it's easy for people to dismiss it. But... I think what we have to understand and what Paul demonstrates for us and what really the consistent witness of Scripture is, is that the Bible calls uh, the follower of Jesus, that is, people who have decided to be his disciples, commit to him, to following after him, to be everyday disciples, it calls us to be people who will consistently talk to people about Jesus and work, labor, to help them overcome barriers of understanding to move in the power of the Spirit, to be led and directed by God himself, and then, but also to grow in our capacity to, to, to present the gospel and, and, to, and to make people make these connections between their, their actual felt needs and the truth of the gospel. We are called to be people who are doing, just like Paul, maybe, maybe in, in probably in a lesser way because Paul had a unique calling as a missionary and as an apostle, but we are all called to be people who do this thing, and yes, it's hard, but as Paul explains, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He's not apologetic about it. I think I've got that. I put the passage back up, but it's necessary. Get the next one, yeah. He's not apologetic about it to the church. He's just saying, look, this is the way it is. You're going to be a follower of Jesus. You're going to be a person who is called to proclaim the truth of who he is. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What does that statement even mean? Um, it's a funny thing, because I think for a lot of us, uh, we would have trouble sorting out what Paul is saying here. What does it mean for us? And, and, and our, really, it's because we have barriers to understand this, and they're theological barriers. They're actually the right things that we believe about God taken the wrong way. Isn't that funny? That should, should illustrate us the way that the other people have barriers and intellectual obstacles to understanding the gospel too, just like we do, just like we do. The, the first barrier that we have um, is that we have a, a theology of salvation. If you're, if you're a, you know, a Protestant, you've been around here for a long time, you have a, you have a theology of, of salvation that is hard to square with this statement, right? You see the problems? I thought I, was enter I thought I was already in the kingdom of God because I just believed in Jesus and I had faith in Jesus. What is this entering in business? And it's hard? I thought it was easy. I, I, just, I just trust in Jesus. It's, it's like, this, like, how do these things square up together? We have everything. I, I have faith in Jesus. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Like, and yes, but, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm not telling you this is not true. These are true things that you believe. We have everything we want and need in Jesus right now. He is King, Lord. He, he, he's, he's supplying us. We have a relationship with God right now, access by faith, according to grace, to him. It's totally true. But when Paul says things like this, that we have to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom, we start to think, but I, I thought I was already in. And what, you, what is this going through? And what is this entering into business? I thought when I believed, I was following him, I'm in. And actually, yes, okay, look, you are. I think it's true. You're, you're in the kingdom. He is your king. You are living according to his purpose now, or at least, at least called to be this sort of person who is. Uh, Christopher J. Tried, I don't have this quote up there. He says this, The call of the disciple was, was, was fundamentally a challenge to accept and submit to the reign of God and to shape the whole life accordingly. 
People who believe in Jesus, who respond by faith, have, have their eyes open to what is true, and that's that God is gifting them and calling them into a relationship. And of course, like if I just have like this awesome new way of existing, then my life should follow after that. And that's part of the call of a disciple, is to become people who are really just conforming our lives to what we understand to be true, Right? And we're not earning our way into the kingdom by doing that really well. We're already invited into the kingdom on the basis of God's grace. I don't, if I'm a bad disciple or I fail in my discipleship at points, that doesn't get me kicked out of the kingdom. God has invited me in. He's, he's, he's secured my place there because I stand there on the basis of his grace. So how do I think about excuse me, what Paul is saying? Well, I actually think we have a really good picture um, in the Bible, in the Bible narrative, in the Old Testament narrative, of a king who was already a king, but who had not yet entered into his kingdom. A king who was already a king, who had people following after him, who acknowledged him as king, who, who like treated him like he was, was Lord, but he was not yet sitting on the throne. You know who that is? I bet some of you guys already figured it out. I bet Bob's got it figured out. King David. King David, right? For those of you who don't know the story of King David, he was a king. He was anointed by Samuel. God, basically, there was this bad king named Saul that the Israelites demanded that God put in place because he was tall. Great reason. Um, and so if God said, well, if that's who you want, the tall guy, okay, who am I to disagree? That, well, obviously, if he's seven feet tall, he is the appropriate choice for king because king is just the team, is basketball. It's just basketball. Being a king is just playing basketball. So, King Shaq, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I don't know anything about basketball. I do know who Shaq is, so that's good for me. Pat on my back. Um, anyways, so, so they, they, they have the point of this king, Saul, but in the end, Saul just proves his character is just deficient. He's not really a good king. He's not a king to God's own heart. He's not somebody who's capable to, to lead God's people into what they're truly called to. And so Samuel, the priest at the time, is told to go find this other young man named David and to anoint him king, and he's anointed king. In God's eyes, he's king. It's done. He's been proclaimed by God to be king. And yet for 15 years, he's not, as far as the onlooker might be concerned, the king. Saul's still the king. For 15 years, David is wandering around the wilderness, hiding from Saul who's trying to kill him. He's gathered around him a, a band of mighty men and women. Women were following him as well. Um, they, were, they were out there like they acknowledged him as king in their hearts, but they knew he wasn't yet seated on the throne. And you can imagine what it was like to be one of those mighty men. They were, they were strong and they were courageous and they needed to be because they were being persecuted. And they were following this king that they knew God had appointed the one who had been set up and anointed, but yet not yet taken on the throne, and to follow that king was great hardship. To follow that king into his kingdom, where he would come and sit on the throne and set everything right and lead Israel in justice and mercy and truth for his lifetime, to, into the, the ways of God, where he would establish all things, that was a hard season. 15 years at least of hardship. And like, we need to understand that he's our king. Like, if we're people who have come to understand who Jesus is, then we're people who just say, yeah, like, I've given you my whole life, Jesus, because I see that you are the one sent to save. You, Jesus, are the one who's come on a mercy mission to be a gift to the nations and to draw people to yourself. But we also understand, as we unpack this book and we read what's going on, is that he has not yet come. The kingdom, and this is like theological language, has been inaugurated. It's been begun. He's been anointed king. He's sitting as king, but it's not been established. He's coming back again. And this interim time until Jesus comes and truly is ruler of all things, which is coming, 
He's going to be ruling in Jerusalem over the whole world, and we're going to be right there with him, and it's going to be good and beautiful, and every tear will be wiped away, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. There will be a time when he will be king, but in the interim, something else is going on. We're just waiting, and we're following after him, despite the challenges that come. We're, we're following after him like, like David's mighty men, like, like treating him as king, working to build his power and his strength and his kingdom, submitting to him and everything, loving him and expressing our loyalty to him. This is what we're called to. Christopher J.H. Wright says this, So our mission is to the ends of the earth and until the end of the world for all time and space on this planet. All disciples, all followers of Jesus are mandated to obey this self-replicating instruction. That is, that we are on a mission with God, the mission that he's on. We are, in short, on a mission as soon as we submit our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Even in the midst of the political change and chaos, even in turbulent times, even when the gods and idols of our culture are rampant and apparently triumphant, even when we discern the outworking of God's judgment in our nation, nevertheless, our mission goes on. You have everything in Jesus. You're saved. You have life with him. You're, you, he's your, your ever-present help in a time of need right here, right now. And yet he is building something. He is a missional God, a God who is not just wanting to like move things aside and, and just like honestly conquer his enemies, one who looks at his enemies, people who are ignorant and unaware of who he is, and he says, I'm going to be merciful to them, and so I'm going to give them time, and my people are just going to wait a little longer, endure hardship, and that's okay, because my purpose is, of, is, is to go and proclaim this message of, of the grace that I've sent my church out to proclaim, and so they're going to have to endure hardship until I come again. My church is going to have to have some hard things going on because I am on a mission. See, the thing about us, and the thing, is, the thing that's really challenging about following Jesus in 2022 in America is that I think we've stopped believing that this is true, that we'd have to endure hardships. We want to be comfortable. I, I want that very much. Of course I want to be comfortable. I love being comfortable. It's my favorite thing to be. But we have to ask ourselves, what's my life for? And, and if we're followers of Jesus, like, you have a purpose. It's to match up with his purpose. See, a lot of us want, 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 want uh, God to be with us, right? We have this relationship with God, and we were just like, oh, awesome. Like, I'm saved. Like, I can know God, and, and he's going to take care of me, and I can pray to him and talk to him, and he, wherever I am. So I don't have to go to church because wherever I am, God's going to be there, right? Like, so it doesn't matter if I'm a, I'm a part of what he's doing because, like, he's just with me. So a lot of us want God to be with us. That's what we have when we're saved. But that also means that we need to be where he is. Like, we're called to be where he is. And where is God in the world? What's God doing? What's he up to? He's on a mission. He's building his kingdom. He's inviting us to trust him and to join with him on this mission, to not be so dismayed and so like caught up in the stuff of this world, but instead to keep our eyes focused on what he's doing. And what he's doing is good. He's proclaiming his kingdom. He's building it. He's bringing it about. And we're called to be people who just uh, go there with him. That's not a bummer. That's not a bummer. It's actually really fun. Can't life be boring? Isn't a comfortable... Let me just tell you something. Comfortable life is pretty boring. It really is. You live it for 10, 15, 20 years, and you start to say, what is this even for? I come home, 4.30, I watch TV for three hours, sit in my air-conditioning house, and, and life should be good, but it's not satisfying. It's like my conscience is telling me something. Like, maybe there's something more to life. Maybe this, this life that I'm living isn't as beautiful as it could be. Maybe there's actually something good in doing something hard. <laughs> Maybe there's actually something awesome in living a life according to the purposes of God. Maybe, even though that might be a life of hardship, maybe it's a good life. Worship team's going to come up here. And um, 
You know, I just hope that we could see that. I hope that we could just see when, when, when difficulty comes and when, I don't know, when there's mobs and riots and people stone us. I hope no one gets stoned on two levels. I mean that, yes. See? Jokes. Funny. Um, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen to anybody. I, I'm kind of doubtful it will. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, by the way. Some of you guys are, guys are not, but I'm like a super optimist. I'm like, oh, Jesus, he's, he's, got, it. he's got it covered. It's going to be fine. Um, but like, you know, whatever. Whatever God has is good. I mean, that's, that's really in the end. Like Paul could go from one town where they organize themselves to get stoned, he can get out of there just in time, to, to the next town where they actually do stone him. And then he could go on to the next town after that and keep doing what he's been doing. And he could do that with great joy because he understands he has purpose in life. And it's okay. Because hardships are going to happen, and it's not like it costs him much. Just a few bruises. <laughs> just a little pain. Just a little discomfort. Nothing wrong with it. And we should not be so concerned when things in this world look like they're deteriorating. Because Jesus is building his kingdom. And he's doing something better. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, the people here, Lord, and we thank you for your presence, God. I, I really appreciated the last couple weeks, Lord, that as we just kind of finished up, we just wait on you a minute, and you're present with us, Lord, and so I just want to do that again, Lord. I just want to just come into your presence now, Lord. Like, I know you, like, of course, yeah, you're here, you're everywhere, but Lord, just remind us of the truth of who you are. Lord, you're a gift. Jesus, you're, you're a gift to us. Let us draw upon, live in the reality of that gift. Lord, give us eyes to see how much better your purposes and your ways in our lives are than the things that we devise, the plans that we come up with, Lord, even if it means hardship. Who cares, Lord? Lord, we want to be people who don't just have you with us, but are where you are, going where you're going, going about your business, doing the things, caring about the things that you care about. Lord God, you are so gracious and you're so kind. Holy Spirit, would you just come among us even as we worship you now, Lord? Would you build us up and strengthen us, Lord? Would you give us the, the grit, the grit that we need to persist in this world, in the world that's so different than the one we grew up in? It feels like culture has changed and the world has changed, but you're the same. Your purpose is the same. Lord, call us call us to be people who are on mission with you, I pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand up. Let's worship the Lord together.